Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who is 100%, 100% dependent. I'm dependent. I'm dependent on water. I'm dependent on water. And March 22nd is World Water Day. Um, That's an annual um, worldwide observation for Saturday um, on Saturday, March 22nd. So today's topic is all about water. And we have a wonderful water expert with us today. Uh, Dr. Karen Jennings is the Research and Policy Director at Freshwater. Welcome. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about uh, Freshwater. What is Freshwater, um, our Freshwater organization? Freshwater is a 50-year-old Minnesota nonprofit that started as a kind of garage band on Lake Minnetonka, two guys in a garage testing the waters before the Clean Water Act. They recognized something was happening with water quality, and they took it upon themselves to study it, eventually getting enough contributions to build a large laboratory on Lake Minnetonka and Navarre. And in the 50 years since it started, we have evolved to become an organization that is now more about trying to affect change in policy and build capacity in communities to create clean water. So uh, the Clean Water Act, that was a really important um, transition. Correct. It was a very important transition, and I think people forget that it happened during the Nixon administration. Um, I remember... I, I'm giving my age away, but okay. I remember pre-Clean Water Act waters in Ohio, in Lake Erie, um, where I spent the summers, and we don't want to go back to those days. The Clean Water Act has been very successful in dealing with point source pollution, which was the kind that was polluting Lake Erie, um, catching rivers on fire, you know, the industrial discharge Point source means it's coming from a pipe. We can regulate that pipe. And so it's been very successful. Um, And that act also removed phosphates from most of our detergents. Um, Dishwashing detergent was overlooked at the time because it just wasn't very common. But we don't see the effects of excess phosphate in the water anymore either. So, so a lot to great celebrate. Successes. A lot to celebrate with that Clean Water Act. But one of the things that we, when we were talking before the show is that people don't always consider the groundwater. That's true, um, and the the Clean Water Act is thinking most about surface water quality, um, groundwater quality, and quantity are things that are less regulated. So, uh, groundwater quality um, and. So one of the things you said is that like this water is actually a hundred thousand years old. How does what does this all mean? Well, I'm looking at your glass of water, and I know where we are in the West Metro, and I know that in the suburbs we're not drinking the river as we do in Minneapolis and St. Paul. We're pumping water from deep underground, and in this part of the the metro, we're looking at 400 feet deep wells potentially. And that is deep enough in the ground that it takes a very long time for rain to percolate down to that depth. Um, And it moves vertically and also flows laterally. Um, So it takes a long time to reach that depth, but also maybe it's flowing in very slowly from other places. In some cases, it only really gets deep in the ground when a glacier is sitting on top of it. It forces the water deeper. So we can date water and when it was last at the surface and how long it's been in the ground. And I know that some of the water in the West Metro and Western Hennepin County is 400,000 years old. Wow. So we might be drinking 400,000 year old water. Drinking and sprinkling it on the lawn and doing whatever else you do with water. And Are, are I, we responsible with this groundwater? Are, are we acting in ways that are reciprocal with the natural world and, and kind and respectful of the groundwater? I think we often don't have the tools to make that distinction between what is a renewable water source like the rain that can be falling in a bucket and used or the water underground. We we treat it all as one water when in fact it's quite different and one of the surface the surface water source is sustainable. That's why Minneapolis and St. Paul switched to surface water years ago. Major metropolitan areas cannot exist on groundwater. They just draw it down too fast. Um, The suburbs probably shouldn't be on it forever either. They should probably be thinking of ways to cycle off. We know that our Metropolitan Council, which helps with regional planning, um, especially with these shared resources, has documented 
that are projected that the groundwater will be drawn down on, under all the major suburban cities by 2040. So there have to be plans to conserve. By 2040, the groundwater may be drawn by – and are some cities, some parts of the Twin Cities more vulnerable than other parts of the Twin Cities? Yeah. If you look – if you think about it, I, I like to think about maybe um, a blue Slurpee or some kind of a big slushy drink that you get um, in a giant cup uh-huh. <laughs> and drawing that center down with a straw. I mean you can draw that colored part down and you can maybe even make a little cone in the surface of it if you keep the straw in one place. Maybe a thick milkshake is a better analogy. If you pump really hard on the groundwater, you develop a cone in the surface of the water table like that. And so it just gets drawn down farther and farther in that pumping center. If you stop pumping, it will relax and come back up a little bit. And so it's best to think about pumping less, you know, not sucking so hard on that well and lessening the impact on the water level. Right, because if some water is 400,000 years old, that is just – that's such a beautiful image. I want to honor that. I don't want to just suck it down. And then, so, do we waste a lot of water? I see a lot of waste, um, and I think just um, I think if you were in a situation in your home where the electricity was off and you didn't have any water for twenty four hours, you would understand how much we need in a given day and how much we use, and then how much we just kind of waste. Um, but I want people to look beyond just domestic use and what they see flowing out of their tap and think about wasted water in all industrial processing and food processing situations. I mean, much like people start thinking about their carbon footprint, it's there are calculators out there that can help you think about your water footprint. And maybe you can offer some links to those on your Facebook page or oh, website. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. so we can, can put that on a Facebook page, and I also have a food freedom uh, foodfreedomradio dot uh, com um, website that we can put those links on. So, how do we reduce our how do we reduce our carbon footprint and our water footprint when we eat? So, can you give us yeah. some general tips on well, that? Well, fortunately, those overlap quite a bit because one of the largest um, users of water is the. In- industrial energy that we consume so whether it's hydro energy or or coal or nuclear water is involved in those processes so energy consumption reducing your energy consumption will reduce your water use it doesn't look like it to you you're not hearing that trickle slow but it does have that impact and then the other thing that you can do is a lot of water goes into making meat because you're growing the crop, irrigating the crop most likely, using that grain to feed the animal. There's a lot of water that goes into the animal processing of it. And we had a speaker in our Moose Family Lecture Series at Freshwater that suggested that just becoming vegetarian is the best thing you could do. Mm-hmm. Right, and especially uh, it's in the industrial meat. If you're sourcing from a, a small farm that's doing um, regenerative agriculture that has a lower carbon and water footprint than the industrial system because the industrial system is really reliant on uh, monoculture and high water intensity activities. Also, um, the industrial system is um, pollutes water, um, nitrates in the water, nitrate water. Can you, can you describe some of those problems? Yeah, I think we are commercial agricultural system doesn't take into account, doesn't have to take into account how it affects water quality. This is the the missing link in the Clean Water Act. It regulated point source pollution, but didn't address non-point source pollution. And what we mean by non-point source is anything that's polluting water that doesn't flow from a pipe. So something that runs off your lawn or something that runs off a farm field or something that is coming off the road into uh, a waterway. And agriculture... I want to make the distinction first between agriculture and food (laughs) because a lot of – if you drive rural Minnesota, what you see is mostly two crops, corn and soybeans. And that's not the corn you eat out there. That is a corn that's used primarily for ethanol and also for feed for animals. Um, A very small part of it goes for human consumption and that's to create um, corn syrup and corn starch. So sweet corn – Corn on the cob, that's a different, totally different crop. And soybeans as well, that is mostly a crop that's grown for grain and then for commodities, making oil, making plastics, you know, a lot of things you can make out of these two crops. But those aren't food. 
I see food grown in much smaller plots of land. In fact, you kind of drive past them without noticing them, perhaps, unless you're going down Highway 52 and you see them on American Farming Association and their plots. Mm-hmm. That's what food plots look like. Or and we have a great open house if anyone wants to see and op- see real farms, as does the Seward and the co- the community um, uh, uh, the community co-ops. They have great farm tours to see what other small farms are like. Yeah, very small. I live down near Northfield, and there's a lot of CSAs and on all around Northfield, and you see enthusiastic young couples working very hard on their you know ten to forty acres. Very small, like farming used to be. Yeah, it's a beautiful trend. Um, I, I also remember when I went through uh, Wisconsin, there was a sign, don't drink this water because of the nitrates. So in some of the rural areas, they're, they're really in a crisis right now. They are. And that I and that's the way you let off that question. So let me get back to that idea because corn is is a crop that requires a lot of nitrogen. It's a huge plant, and it grows very quickly in a short time, and so it needs fertilizer, and primarily it needs nitrogen. Nitrogen is something that's not held in the soil very well. It escapes quickly into the water, and especially it gets away from corn. If you don't apply it in small amounts at very specific times in the growing season for corn, it just is lost. And that's a loss for the farmer because nitrogen isn't free. It costs quite a bit of money. And it's a loss for us because nitrogen, once it's lost from the crop, gets into the water and is a nutrient that is going to be fertilizing other things that we Mm -hmm. don't intend to promote. So any organism that's in the water that's growing will just be fertilized and grow to excess. Same with phosphorus, which is also lost in dissolved form and attached to sediment from these fields. But it's primarily corn that needs the nitrogen but also is a very leaky system. Right, and so that's um, very hard on the water is the nitrogen and the and the the the, the, the these cycles. Um, and yet, there are some um, solutions, some innovative solutions going on right now, like the Forever Green Initiative, which we, we will talk about when we come back. Uh, we need to take a break right now. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, and with us is Dr. Carrie Jennings uh, with uh, Fresh Water. What's wrong Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of Vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. I'm Connie Bjork, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind, body, spirit, emotion perspective. On the Awakened Living Radio Show, we will discuss stress, self-care, fear, happiness, beliefs, communication, joy, pain, trauma, and more. Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion radio show Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. Hi, Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. March is Auto Show Month at Rudy Luther. This means throughout the month, they'll have great auto show deals on all new Toyotas. My first Toyota love was the RAV4, and it's completely redesigned for 2019. And the new RAV4 Hybrid will be here soon. Remember, buy a new Toyota and get a $250 gift card. Trade in a vehicle on a new Toyota and get another $250 gift card. That means a total of $500 in savings. Rudy Luther Toyota, 394 and 169 in Golden Valley and online at RudyLutherToyota.com. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of Living Healthy and Aging Well, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one, where we talk about your health and your life and provide insights to living and aging well. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding health care, elder care, end-of-life care, and caregiver support to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your highest quality of life today. Please join us every Saturday from noon to one for Living Healthy and Aging Well. The Downtowner Woodfire Grill in St. Paul is the perfect choice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Offering daily fresh seafood specials, fire-roasted meats, exquisite pizza, and half-price bottles of wine on Mondays and Tuesdays, except on Excel Energy event nights. Once you experience their cozy fireside dining, extensive wine list and bar, you'll be back for more. Gift certificates and private dining room for parties available. Located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. 
I'm Candy Braffle, publisher of the Twin Cities edition of Natural Awakenings Magazine and host of Green Tea Conversations, a new show for people who are on a journey to take responsibility for their health and play a more active role in their family's well-being. Join me every Sunday at 10 a.m. as I interview local experts who share the latest in natural, holistic approaches in a fun and informative way. So grab a cup of tea and join the conversation as we awaken to natural health. Visit us at naturaltwincities.com. Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio with me is Dr. Karen Jennings. She is the Research and Policy Director at Freshwater. And when we left on break, we were talking about um, the Forever Green program. So talk about some of that work. It's pretty exciting. It is exciting. I just heard um, Dr. Don Wise testifying in front of the legislature this week. And he's one of the brains behind this at the University of Minnesota. You know, we have a land-grant university that is supposed to be helping agriculture and helping the state. And has developed new crops over the years. He emphasized that soybeans didn't used to be a crop that were viable, but the university helped develop those crops so that they could be grown in a short season in Minnesota. And currently, he's focused his efforts on crops that are kind of taking us back to what the landscape used to look like, crops that are perennial, crops that will be covering the ground all the time. And again, if you've driven rural Minnesota in any time that's not June, July, or August, you notice that what you're seeing is mostly bare dirt. So we have a period of time where the soil is just leaching the nutrients that have been applied to it and also maybe eroding away. Both of those things we would like to avoid. Having continuous living cover on the ground will reduce that and also use nutrients year-round instead of letting them leach away. So the goal is to find a crop that has enough protein to be used for animal feed or for human consumption that will also um, be perennial. And I did put it on the Food Freedom uh, Facebook page. There's a great video out there, um, and it shows how much runoff from traditional corn. They they add water. You can see all the dirt coming down. And then at the Forever Green, the water comes into the perennial system, and it comes out clean. The roots are so incredibly long in these grasses, basically. Kernza is the one that they're looking at, among others. But, you know, six-foot-long roots compared to corn's little stubby, you know, (laughs) few inches, you know, that. That's a very good visual just to see how much root mass you create. The other thing that perennial crops do is they add carbon back to the soil. So their roots will die and that releases carbon to the soil. An annual crop is not doing this as much. There might be a little residue left after harvest in the fall and that's just not very much carbon that returns. And increasing carbon storage is good for the atmosphere. It's also good for the water holding capacity of the soil. So that's, those are kind of bundled into this concept of soil health. And how, so how do people support this Forever Green? I, and I know there's been some innovation, like you can get Kernza beer now. So that, yeah. you know, <laughs> people are working on it. Very small amounts of Kernza are being used for beer at Bang Brewing and for uh, at Birchwood Cafe for pancakes and muffins and things like that. That's not a lot. doesn't take a lot of acres. What needs to happen now, What what the reason Don Wise and others were at the legislature this session is the farmer's Um, would like to start growing this, but there isn't a supply chain. There isn't enough known about the the quality of the grain, how to get the grain to market, who's going to actually be processing it into something. So there should be money from the state that takes a little bit of that risk away from the farmer Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to assume it personally. That kind of creates this new system because the state is currently spending a lot of money to look at water quality issues and clean up waters and this is another way to address the water quality issues and prevent the pollution from happening. Uh, last uh, show, we had the uh, president of the Minnesota Farmers Union, and he just got back from the National Farmers Union. And they, the National Farmers Union reports that the average farmer in the United States lost over $1,500. Last year. Just last year. Just last year. Yeah, I was talking to my um, curling partner about his dad, 70-year-old, um, who is $3 million in debt, has farmed his whole life in Minnesota, and every year just loses more money. He's locked into corn and soybeans. The market hasn't been good for those for years. The bank keeps loaning him money, keeps letting him borrow against the value of his land, which goes up um, 
And so he lives off credit cards and just deeper in debt every year. It's, And I don't think he can see a way out. No, I don't think he can. And and then and then I also sometimes feel like I can't see a way out. You you hear, you know, uh, one tragedy after another um and and all the um obviously we're in, in climate crisis already and how do we make a switch? I you know. It's and I I I've never read the farm bill. I've read parts of it, but I know that it's the farm bill that drives what people grow. Right. And it locks them into it in a way that's kind of odd. I know that if a farmer, um, if part of his crop fails, he has insurance or she has insurance to cover that failure. And so they'll get paid whether the crop is successful or not. Um, So that doesn't discourage them from planting in the wrong places, like in low spots in the field that don't drain well. That actually encourages them to keep doing the same failed thing. And you think about um, how many people are really stressed out. I think of a single mom working even one and a half jobs and, you know, can barely afford fast food. And and fruits and vegetables are so expensive. And yet, as a grower, fruits and vegetables, I mean, we should be encouraging. We should have that. Our system is just not... Um, not very smart. Yeah, it's not designed. It's not, it's not designed. It's like we're we're all like um, on the past momentum rather than being able to design the present or being aware of it. Yeah, and I think farmers would jump at a chance to grow something that actually made them a little more money. Mm-hmm. Um, I have organic farming friends that say the most you can make per acre is to grow organic vegetables. Um, so that they're successful doing that, and if they have a successful marketing strategy, then we can all be successful. And we've had wonderful community support with the mm-hmm. co-ops and uh, just feels better getting the right uh, vibes. So, um, but t- connect again, the soil health to water health. Those are also connected. They are. And they're, they're connected because crops can, I had a farmer tell me once he could grow a crop in concrete if he had the right chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't doubt that, but um, you can also sustainably grow a crop in a healthy soil, a, a soil that supports the microorganisms that actually contribute to the root growth and allow a plant to take more water and to be more um, resilient to just slight shifts in the weather. Um, and and there are groups of farmers in the Corn Belt in Minnesota that are focused on soil health now for their own benefits, to reduce the inputs to their land, to reduce the number of trips. They go back and forth in the rows that reduces their carbon footprint. And it also, by the way, helps water quality. So anything we can do to improve soil health will result in better water quality. And and you have uh, David Montgomery coming up. And, we do, um, yes. So talk about that a bit. Well, he's a geologist like I am, and so I'm really excited. We have a um, Moose Family Speaker Series that we co-host with the College of Biological Sciences at the University of Minnesota. And he's one our spring speaker, David doc, Dr. David Montgomery from University of Washington in Seattle. He's a geomorphologist, but what he's talking about is his recent books. Um, he has a couple about growing a revolution, um, soil health book, and then dirt, the erosion of civilization. Right, and David Montgomery was on this um, on the show um, when he was at the Nobel Conference '54, and he says we're entering the fifth um, agriculture revolution, which is actually going to be something. Fun, you know. He also talked when he was on my show. It was really nice. He was like, "I'm like a band member. We want to jam on something fun. We can have clean water. We can have soil health. We can have regenerative farms. We can have bee friendly, water friendly, soil friendly, and human friendly. So everyone makes money and just kind of that's we can do that. They all go together. They all go together. He has a band too. He, he really does. does. He does. <laughs> You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. This is Chad, owner of AM950. I've been telling you about my friends at Snap Construction who are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior construction company in the metro. Don't just take my word for it. Take a look at all their reviews online. Winter is the most cost-effective time of the year to complete your construction project. A majority of Minnesotans choose to have their work completed on their home in the summer when they should be enjoying the weather. As a result, the demand for labor in the summer is much higher. The most cost-effective way to improve or restore your home is in the winter due to the lower demand. Right now, Snap Construction is offering an additional 30% off of labor to the AM950 listeners on your next construction project. Call 612-333-SNAP and mention AM950 for an additional 30% off. As always, Snap Construction stands by their work with a lifetime craftsmanship warranty. 
Don't wait to get a free estimate by calling 612-333-SNAP or find them online at snapconstruction.com. Financing options available. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Cafe Latte offers made-from-scratch soups, salads, sandwiches, and mouth-watering desserts. Stop in the wine bar and enjoy a unique pizza loaded with fresh vegetables and perfectly roasted meats. Over 30 wines by the glass, Cafe Latte highlights Washington State wines and is the perfect destination for date night or an evening with friends. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Victor's 1959 Cafe has been serving South Minneapolis traditional Cuban food for over 15 years. Victor's is open for breakfast and lunch daily and now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try the Pollo Tropicale or the Sandwich Cubano, which was featured on Food Network. More at eatlocalminnesota.com. Native Ritz Radio is proud to announce we've added an extra hour. Yeah, Chushke, one hour goes by too fast. That's right, Uncle Curtis. I'll have extra time to share important information about our sacred animals. And report national and native news from all over the country and Canada. This new hour is sponsored by Robbins Kaplan LLP, dedicated to redefining excellence for high-stakes litigation representation in Indian country. We are awake Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Brett Johnson. Look for partly sunny skies today with a high near 33. Tonight, cloudy with a low around 22. Sunday, cloudy with a high near 36. And Monday, partly sunny with a high near 38. The Downtown or Woodfire Grill is the Eat Local Minnesota Restaurant of the Week. They have daily fresh seafood specials, fire-roasted meals, exquisite pizza, and half-price bottles of wine Mondays and Tuesdays except on Excel Energy event nights. They have gift certificates available, too. Located at 253 West 7th Street in downtown St. Paul. More at downtownorwoodfire.com. So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlin, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person totally dependent on water. And that's our topic today, water. In studio with us is Dr. Carrie Jennings. Uh, she is the Research and Policy Director at the organization Fresh Water. And um, on March 22nd is going to be World Water Day. Um, so, um, and I know there's going to be an event at the First Universal Church of Minneapolis at 3400 DuPont Avenue uh, from 6 o'clock uh, to 9 o'clock, Friday, March 22nd. Uh, water is sacred. And I want to, this, this movement towards not just seeing water as a mechanicalistic thing, but as an essence, as, as, a, as a reverence and having a reverence for water and having a movement towards that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand that more myself, and I've most of my career been a geologic mapper, and that means I drive every road in part, parts of Minnesota and canoe every river to see the exposures of the rock and sediment. And I had heard about a woman, Sharon Day, um, who was going to be walking the Minnesota River, and I'd pretty much mapped the whole Minnesota River watershed. So I thought, I wonder what it looks like through her eyes. And I went to uh, an event at a church where she was describing what the walk would be like. And then I took 10 days and did that walk with her where the women who are on the walk are dressed respectfully with a skirt and carrying a copper bucket of the water that we scooped up at the headwaters and we carried it down to the confluence at uh, Bedote um, down on Pike Island. And... You know, we passed off the water and we said a little blessing as we handed off the water. We often had um, a man standing with us who would be carrying the eagle head on a stick. Um, they were our protectors, but only the women could carry the water. And we also had 
tobacco to make offerings whenever we saw running water or crossed water. And every step was a prayer is what she said. We're supposed to be in contemplation as we walk. It's not a a time to just chat with whoever's standing next to you. It's to think about what water has and how it contributes to our life. Um, And that was incredibly transformative for me. And it also introduced me to... Um, we, we were joined along the way by other tribal members who were from the Upper and Lower Sioux Agency, um, Shakopee, Midwakadon, Sioux, Sisseton. Um, there's a Sioux tribe out there. And, you know, just to intersect briefly with individuals along the way and walk and see their respect for this, it, I don't think it's something that many people in our European settlement culture would set aside time to acknowledge. You know, we, we might go boating or spend some time at the cabin which maybe in its own way is having respect and reverence for water, maybe quiet paddling. But this was different. I mean, this was all day for 10 days walking, carrying this. And we had a ceremony at the end when the water was returned and with a prayer for, you know, hope for cleaner water. And uh, uh, yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, there is um, a World Indigenous Peoples Decade Water Summit going on right now, and I'm just going to play a little clip from theirs um, to get a, to have these voices um, talk. And so, the World Indigenous Peoples Decade of Water Summit is really an Indigenous approach. Indigenous is a world movement. Indigenous is a world story. What indigenous means, it's not just a political identity, but you see, indigenous is just a human being way of life. It's a way of life that reminds us what it means to be related to the earth, a way of life that reminds us to remember our mother, because we believe what happens to the earth happens to us. We believe our water is sacred because we are born of water and live in water for nine months. When the water breaks, new life comes. But even deeper than that, we come from our mother's water and her mother's water and so on. All the original water flows through us from the beginning and all around us. Water is the lifeblood of Mother Earth. Whether it's frozen in the form of rain or clouds, in rivers, lakes, and oceans, water is around us and sustains us all. You see, what happens to the earth happens to us. So it is that same lesson, that same line of thought that says that mankind must put an end to water pollution or else water pollution will put an end to mankind. You see, to me, no amount of rationalization could justify the pollution of fresh drinking water. Drinking water is an inherent human right. It is also the foundation of life. And so there's that spiritual and cultural relationship that we share with water. So the World Indigenous Peoples Decade of Water Summit really attempts to engage that collective knowledge and intelligence. So this World Indigenous People Decade of Water Summit, if we had a more sacred sense of the water, do you think it would increase our responsibility towards the water? I think it it would have to. Um, I'm looking at some of the best, most innovative water approaches in the state and seeing them from the Shakopee, Midwakot, and Sioux. Um, They have the money to invest in cleaning water. They reuse water. You know, they have a big facility there with a hotel and casinos, but they take water from their green roof. Their stormwater is treated. They reuse um, wastewater for irrigation on a golf course. They looked into the possibility of recharging the groundwater in beneath the land where they are. They have an ultra-pure water treatment system. They've um, helped the Upper Sioux Agency um, nation put in similar water treatment facility in their in their land kind of between Granite Falls and Montevideo and they're setting a really good example for how we can be still living the lifestyle we want to live and yet treating the water in a way that is respectful and I think the other thing I see them doing is returning a lot of the land around um, the casino area in Shakopee to native vegetation so they're as farms go under or as farms are being sold they buy those and return them to prairie vegetation 
all those things are good for water. They're they're good, and, and that just it makes me feel um, more relaxed. I mean, sometimes when, when I was listening to that tape, I had this idea of you know, in some ways, we've also been industrialized, <laughs> you know, and how do we find our our own inner roots and find a different way of um, functioning um, that is more enlivening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a question. <laughs> I'm not sure I either. Mean, the other, the other um, group of women that I was so inspired by um, were gathered together by Cure, Clean Up mm-hmm. Our River Environment, an organization out in Montevideo, 30-year-old, mm-hmm. maybe more now. And they had um, a bunch of Native American women this summer who were running for office in North Dakota and Minnesota, um, federal office, state office, city council, Klu- Cloquet City Council, and all of these women were interested in water as kind of one of their main political agenda items, and most of them were elected, including our lieutenant governor who was there, Peggy Flanagan. So I was very inspired to see them um, translating their, their cultural value for water into political action. And it was no political action, so that's what the mission is of the organization that you work with. So tell us again a little bit about Freshwater. Freshwater, so we've moved from being kind of the garage band lab scientists to us. I'm a scientist, but I, I know that to affect change, actually, we need to engage policymakers and people, just people, mm-hmm. can, can make change without policy change. So Freshwater... Um, my direct my job as director of research and policy, I translate science into policy actions that the state can take. Um, right now, I'm working on a getting a bill through the legislature to address groundwater deficits in parts of the state and consider a third approach after conservation and reuse of groundwater. We might potentially want to recharge groundwater, help water get back into the ground. So how, do, how can we recharge the groundwater? Well, in simple scenarios um, that are being conducted in Nebraska, you just divert surface water to a place where it will soak in. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's... Exa- Rain gardens. Yeah, exactly. And then in areas where you're actually consuming water that doesn't get recharged very easily, you might want to pump water into that aquifer to recover later. This that sounds scary to people, but it is actually being done successfully in parts of the country, including in the West Metro, um, where they treat water at night when the energy costs are lower and recover it during the day when it's high energy, but they aren't, you know, they're not running their treatment plant at that point. It, it, it kept them from building a larger treatment plant as well. So there might be economic reasons to do this. We want to study that and see where it makes sense. But so that's the policy end of what freshwater does. But we also try to just increase the capacity of the citizen to do things good for water. Everyone's probably heard of the University of Minnesota's Master Gardener program. Mm-hmm. And maybe if you're lucky, you have a master gardener in your neighborhood who gives you great advice. We have a master water steward program. And I have a master water steward in my neighborhood. So <laughs> oh, you do? I, yeah, yeah. yeah. So master water stewards go through a nine-month certificate program, and they learn about what good approaches are to managing excess water in your neighborhood, stormwater from your apartment complex or runoff from a street or just the gutters in your house and they actually have a capstone project where they install um, some kind of a rain garden or or a system like that so master water steward is the way we build capacity in our communities so we kind of range from that ultra local action to state policy and then everything in between some of the state policy so it's been a, a a challenging winter and salt salt can talk about the issues around road salt yeah, it's you don't want to tell people that they should feel unsafe and not salt. However, they should also be aware that there are lakes in the metropolitan area that will be unsuitable for freshwater life as soon as 2040. And that's because of road salt and in some cases softener salt as well, water softener salt that is getting into the water and it doesn't go away. It's not flushed out with the rain. It accumulates over time. So our groundwater is becoming saltier and saltier and our lake and stream water. If it's in the stream, it might just run off to the Gulf of Mexico where it doesn't matter. But in our lakes in the metropolitan area, it is reaching this critical threshold. I remember seeing a video um, of this woman who was an environmentalist and she said, what do they mean when they say they'll things will go away? 
we almost have this like, you know, you throw the salt and it just everything just goes away. And we don't, we're not responsible. We don't think what's happening with these toxic chemicals. What's, yeah. and, and so trying to reduce our toxic loads, both in government and as individuals, it's, it's at a crisis situation, really. We need to find a way of coming together. Yeah, there's legislation this session as well to deal with salt. And they are wearing these little um, tablespoon measures around their neck on a red cord because one tablespoon of salt permanently pollutes five gallons of water. So when you're sprinkling it on your sidewalk, you should do it with that in mind that you are permanently polluting five gallons with that tablespoon. And are there some simple alternatives, just like the cat sand? or Exactly. And I, I, exactly. Traction. Traction. I, mean, I use better shoes yeah. and, and walk really slowly. <laughs> I wore my yak tracks today, but don't use salt for traction. Use sand for traction or grit. Sand or grits, yeah. So we're talking all things water. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And our guest is Dr. Carrie, Jen- Dr. Carrie Jennings. And she's the research and policy director at Freshwater. I'm Nick Slavic, proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. I've been a craftsman for more than 25 years. My company has been awarded more than five national awards for craftsmanship. You won't find somebody who loves their job more than me. I've devoted my life to my family, my craft, my business, and to the people who trust me with their projects. And I'm happier for doing it. Visit N-I-C-K-S-L-A-V-I-K.com to learn more. Hello, fellow AM950 listeners. This is JJ from Nightingale at 26 in Lindale. Come experience our delicious signature dishes and exciting rotation of inventive seasonal fare for my wife and chef, Carrie, and her team. Nightingale is the perfect place to gather for any occasion with our extensive wine, beer, and cocktail selection, along with our dedication to great service. We offer a full menu every day from 4 to 1 a.m., two award-winning daily happy hours, and weekend brunch at 10. More at nightingalempls.com. Tom Hartman here telling you that solar energy isn't just for environmentalists. Switching to all-energy solar is actually perfect for reducing your carbon footprint while also saving money on your monthly electric bill. The fact that solar panels cause no earth-harming emissions while it's producing energy is a bonus. Who in the world could object to that? But they can also help you save money month after month for decades. And they do it with a clean footprint. So go green and start saving money today by visiting allenergysolar.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Hi, this is Mike Papantonio from Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire is a direct, smart, and i got to promise you, a fearless progressive talk show. Join me, Mike Papantonio, and my co-host Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Sam Cedar as we take on the large corporate conglomerates and that radical right-wing media that dominate America's airwaves. Ring of Fire, Saturdays from 3 to 6 and Sundays from 6 to 9 p.m. on AM 950. It is the progressive voice of Minnesota. Um, hello? If your taxes from years past are talking to you from the back of that drawer in your desk, it might be about time you answered the call by making a call to Moe's Tax Service in St. Paul. Time to come out now. They've been preparing tax returns and creating advisory-based relationships with their clients since 1971. Kind of stuffy in here. Problems with the IRS don't go away by ignoring them. Call Moe's Tax Service. That's M-O-H-S. They're on Ford Parkway in St. Paul. 612-721-2026. 721 Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Uh, I'm Laura Hedlund, and in the studio with us is Dr. Carrie Jennings. Carrie Jennings is the Research and Policy Director at the organization Freshwater. And so, um, Freshwater, one of the things we want to still talk about is increase in flow. Yeah. What does that mean? Maybe you've noticed um, that the Minnesota River seems high all the time, Um, way late in the fall. You know, we used to have a spring flood season like we're going to experience now. 
but our rivers just seem to be bigger and carrying more water. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that we are getting more rain, more precipitation, more intense rainfall events. Do we get and, more snow? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and rain, yeah, all precipitation. And the other is that we also are increasingly impatient with that water sitting around. And so we have stormwater systems in the urban area and tile and ditch drainage in agricultural fields that hurry that water to the stream. So instead of it slowly soaking in, um, we also pave over areas. So instead of it slowly soaking into the ground and eventually making its way to the stream, it runs off quickly. So our floods tend to be higher. Our rivers are flashier. That means they go up and down more quickly after a rain event. That frustrates a lot of people, um, people that are trying to maintain bridges and roads along the rivers. The Minnesota River is 200% wider than it used to be. Wow. And, yeah, so it's really affecting – people are losing land. We think that – we've calculated in the Minnesota River watershed there's an average of 80 acres a year that's just lost, washed downstream by the widening of these rivers. But that also brings with it the nutrients that are attached to that sediment, the phosphorus, excess phosphorus. It makes our rivers muddy. It fills in the lake on the river, Lake Pepin. is a lake that would have existed for another 3,000 years, a nice span of time. And now it's probably going to be about 300, and we're already getting some problems in the northern part of that basin where it's filling in more quickly with sand. It requires frequent dredging so that we can continue barge traffic on the river. It's filling in behind our dams. It's, it's just, it is a problem. Um, so we've accelerated the, what the rivers would do naturally by giving them more water. What the result is in the city is that we get all these intense rain events and hurry our water off our landscape to our storm sewers, which are undersized. I mean, some of them are 100 years old. They were not built for the kind of runoff they're getting now. So a lot of cities are at kind of critical capacity for their stormwater sewer systems. And then the problem in Flint, Michigan, I feel like we really, uh, and I I saw some reports that people are having trouble affording water because of, we have a a big infrastructure problem with the water throughout the country. Do we have infrastructure problems here in the Twin Cities like that? I just had a tour of the Minneapolis water treatment plant and I feel like Minneapolis is in good hands, St. Paul too. And in fact, I had a tour of your water treatment plant not that long ago. I've been in Eden Prairies and Egan's and... These people are doing amazing work with very few people, um, but a, a great technological system of water treatment. Our health department is testing for things at the tap in people's homes and also in the treatment plants. And I feel like we can trust the water that comes out of our tap in Minnesota. I have a private well. I'm in southern Dakota County, and it's up to me to make sure that water is safe for me to drink. No one is looking out for that. So our rural well owners are on their own. And that's where a lot of those farm chemicals and the nitrates are really causing huge problems for people. And but and also the future, I mean to try to digest all of this all of these numbers to what kind of future we're leaving for future generations with our disrespect for the water. Yeah, some people I heard, I was in a conversation this morning where someone said maybe the best approach is for everyone to have that reverse osmosis system on the drinking water faucet in their kitchen and just give up on everything else. But other animals may want to drink water too. Exactly. Maybe it's not all about us drinking water. It's true. It does recharge the streams and yeah, it affects everything. So last four minutes, what are some of the basic tips um, that you have for people to how do we be respectful for, for water? I know you've had uh, lawn integration is, is, is often stupid. <laughs> yeah, lawn irrigation, yeah. Um, I know that some of these suburban cities with the big lawns and not a lot of tall shade trees, that's critical too, um, use six times more water in the summer than they do this time of year, and that's for irrigation. And if you're drinking or if you're pumping up 400 foot deep water that's 100, 200,000 years old, that's irresponsible. Find a better way to treat your yard. You know, do something else with your lawn. 
And then having the landscape, um, uh, some lands, certain plants are thirsties, other ones are not. Right. Longer rooted plants, shorter grass. There's all kinds of recommendations out there for that type of use. But again, the water you don't see, look up your water footprint and find out, you know, is the type of clothing you're buying or the frequency that you're changing your cars or whatever. So water footprint and clothing, connect that dot. Well, I mean, the fiber industry you know grows those fibers for the most part or processes them and it's not just washing your clothes that uses energy or uses water it's the actual production of the clothing and so you're actually being a good water consumer when you're buying used clothing or keeping an article for a long time mm-hmm. as opposed to getting every season's best new I know someone shirt. who likes yeah. to have that but those pants have been going for 30 years man. <laughs> <laughs> but you're saving water <laughs> yeah so um, let's talk about some events coming up um, on Friday March 22nd from 6 to 9 o'clock there's um, a world water and um, the 22nd is world water day there's a water is sacred event and that is at the first universal church of Minneapolis 3400 Dupont Pond Avenue, and that is free. Water is sacred uh, from 6 to 9. Can I mention yes, a couple please of events? Do. April 16th is David Montgomery, our Moose Lecture um, Series speaker this year. He's going to be at the St. Paul Student Union. And then we have a Water Summit at the Science Museum, May 9th and 10th, where we will be addressing the people issue in water. So who do you need to involve and when to actually get change to happen for water? So can you give a quick answer to that question? Who should you get involved to have real change? I think it depends on where you are in the state, what level you're working at. Yeah. I don't know. Go to the Water Summit, May 9th and 10th. May 9th. Because these are very complex issues. And so um, last two minutes. So one thing we did not get on is the White Bear Lake. I mean, that's kind of an example of what's happened on White Bear Lake of the problems we all might be facing if we don't become more rational yeah with white bear like i looked back at the earliest air photos that we have and we have them from the 1930s for all the state and you can see the white bear lake was even smaller then so there are these natural fluctuations in the water table that make big changes in shorelines depending on how sloping the shorelines are and the western part of the state got much drier we were talking dust bowl um Add to that the pumping of groundwater, which is regulated by the Department of Natural Resources, and that's where the White Bear conversation went. They wanted to blame the DNR for permitting the uses, the wells around White Bear Lake. Um, it's I don't want to blame a certain agency that's doing the, the regulation that they're required to do. I don't think we understood completely the connection there in the geology, you know, how well connected White Bear Lake was with the deeper aquifers. Um, but you can't look at just one lake with this issue. You have to look at all lakes in Minnesota and look at the landholders around those lakes. and. If you're setting a precedent to manage water level on one lake for a suburban population, will you be required to do that everywhere? Is that sustainable? Well, and what is sustainable? Um, We need to be um, individually responsible for our water and carbon footprint and find collective ways to have this conversation. So I really thank you so much for joining us uh, today, uh, Dr. Karen Jennings, uh, with the the Research and Policy Director at Freshwater, the organization. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. And thank you, Hunter. 